Continuing where we left off last time with will voters in California force homeless people out of sight once he pushes new battleground. Continue with badly broken. Measure O is backed by a political committee that was formed in February called Sacramentans for Safe and Clean Streets and Parks. Donors include a mix of sports executives, real estate developers, and construction trade groups who had contributed $246,450 as of June 30th, campaign reports show. No fundraising by opponents had been reported as of late August. And it's surprising that, you know, as far as this measure had gone, why, when there was, there was real opposition in the city legislature, why no opponents had started fundraising for this. The biggest donor to the Measure O committee so far is a non or the biggest donor to the Measure O committee so far is a year-old nonprofit called Sacramento Moving Forward. The group registered to officials including Sacramento Region Business Association CEO Joshua Wood has spent $39,000 on the campaign as of June 30th. And yeah, so that's interesting. I guess that would, you know, the business growth would improve more if the illegal camping was able to stop. I would assume they're looking at... Close behind are two executives with ties to professional basketball's Sacramento Kings, real estate developer and former Kings co-owner Mark Friedman, plus an LLC affiliated with Kings Chief Operating Officer Matina Kolokotronis, who campaign filings show have each contributed $25,000. That total was matched by donors affiliated with real estate firms Eden, Devco, Dimond Partners, and LDKV Management. So... Ideally is, you know, when you have a professional sports team in the downtown area, you do, and that's where all the unhoused are living, you do want them off it to provide a, I guess, people would consider a safer and cleaner environment for people who are going to attend those professional basketball games. What these people want is they want to see a pristine downtown, said civil rights attorney Mark Marin, who filed the lawsuit in August to try to block the measure from reaching the ballot. They don't want homeless people visible. And if you did see, or if you didn't hear in the last episode, that um, uh, lawsuit in August did fail. Conway insists the issues run deeper. He points to a convergence of events late last year that included late pandemic angst about dangerous streets, legal challenges to encampments in other cities, plus an effort in Sacramento last December to overhaul the way the city handles encampments that highlighted divisions between officials. So... Basically, um, the people and the voters in Sacramento were and possibly continue not to be too happy with the city and how the issue of the unhoused is being um, the the solutions towards that issue, and how it's hap- you know how how the solutions are being brought up and how they're being enforced or implemented. There was a sense among community members that this is badly broken. Conway said it had everyone looking at each other saying, what do we do now? Something similar that people are saying now that people believe that the measure didn't do much, especially since the $5 million that could be used was capped out. In February, the campaign committee officially formed and started circulating petitions with language developed by attorneys at the Los Angeles Alliance for Human Rights. Conway said where he's also a policy advisor on an effort to sue the city over encampment issues by heated April 6th Sacramento City Council meeting just after a deadly downtown mass shooting killed an unhoused woman along with five others the local debate shifted again and yeah I'm just trying to and that suing over the city over encampment issues is something allowed you know for this measure oh um you know people who are still um, illegally living on property City officials, under pressure from the campaign chaired by Conway, agreed to place a compromise measure on the ballot. The new version clarified shelter requirements and limited the city's general fund expenses to $5 million per year after concern from officials, including city council member and measure O critic Mai Vang, who said at the April meeting the original measure would absolutely bankrupt their city by allowing citizens and businesses to sue over unaddressed encampment issues. And yeah, the $5 million a year can do really very little, so... You know, that is an issue with the measure that was implemented and voted in. An illegal decision this week that foreshadowed a long road ahead for advocates on both sides of the issue. Sacramento Superior Court Judge Shelianne W.L. Ching quoted previous rulings that as a general rule, voters should first get their say, leaving courts to review constitutional and other challenges after election. And that's what's done here. 
Still, the main tenets of Measure O have remained constant. Living in an encampment would be illegal, and occupants could be forced to move if the city identified the minimum number of emergency shelter spaces. An alternative, though, whether that means another tent, a parking spot, an indoor bunk, a private room, or some other shelter remains unspecified. Uh, so that means, um, you know, those alternate living areas have not been provided, so people are allowed to still live in the encampments. Council members Bang and Valenzuela have also warned that the problem would simply be pushed to less affluent and majority non-white neighborhoods in the north and south due to encampment. Buffer zones outline the measure. Um, now that would be interesting, even though that hasn't really been, the measure did pass, Zero did pass, and that really hasn't been the case. Public comments on the issue have been sharply divided. Yes, it's very contentious inside the legislature of the city, so of course the city residents would be very largely divided on the issue, and even the vote totals were very close. Some residents urged city council or some residents urged council members via email to vote no on the barbaric measure that they feared would lead to city-run concentration camps. Others support the proposal on the grounds that the current state is not safe for the individuals living in these conditions or communities surrounding them. I mean, it's not really... It's such a concentration camp, you can get out of it. If, if they believe that's what it's like, and it, it's not what it's occurred. Amid mountain criticism about the feasibility of implementing Measure O, the text was amended again this summer in a bid to force some responsibility onto the better-funded county government. It now includes a requirement that city officials come to a binding agreement with the county agencies before encampment enforcement actions are stepped up, and that's what the city and county are trying to get into agreements currently. Conway and supporters of Measure O are urging officials to come to such an agreement by the time ballots go out on September 30th, so that voters know whether this is real. Mayor Daryl Steinberg said he is optimistic about reaching agreement with the county, though he said the city will not rush the process that is specific about reducing long wait lists for drug and health services, and that identifies a range of new shelter options. And the mayor, I believe, was interviewed because earlier in the year, this year, the city did um, force some unhoused people off their what people call encampments. American cities are not health and human services agencies, said Steinberg, who proposed a precursor to the ballot measure last December, then tabled after public opposition. We can't do it alone. This city can. He's one of the major people who does want to solve this um, unhoused crisis. Let them know at the heart of the conflict over Measure O and other efforts to clear encampments in cities around California is a fundamental disagreement over how much officials are really offering to make the situation better. And uh, yeah, a lot of people see the issue getting worse for both sides, the unhoused and also the people living in the cities. So, you know, what are the officials, public officials actually doing? The court case Martin versus Boise is a, or the court case Martin versus Boise is clear that sweeps of homeless encampments should not move forward unless alternative shelter has been offered, a mandate that has resulted in a familiar stalemate where politicians and social workers insist they are offering shelter only to be rebuffed by unhoused people. People living inside me well often insist such offers fail to materialize or lead back to only undesirable sanctioned tent cities or congregate facilities. I mean, if you're getting offered something that's legitimate housing, you shouldn't really complain because you can improve your life and go to something better. But, you know, there is this issue where this alternative housing is not being offered. The main argument right now is what Martin versus Boise means. Martin said, from his vantage point, Sacramento is among the cities throwing everything that they can at the problem, except actual indoor shelter and housing. And yeah, the indoor shelter and housing units have been so low for the unhoused. So it's possibly going to be, you know, the city really has increased that and they haven't been doing much of that recently. The challenge is magnified in Sacramento where Countywide homelessness has shot up 67% in the past two years to a record 9,278 people. That's more than the unhoused population in San Francisco. And a number that advocates fear will keep growing with rents up 7% the past year alone to median $1,303 for a one-bedroom, according to apartment list. And yeah, I mean, that number is huge. I mean, you're looking at almost 2% of your city's population or no. Well, that's not the city. That's the county. Um, you mean you can't compare, I guess, San Francisco is a smaller county to Sacramento County. But, yeah, that's, I mean, that's close to still 1% of your county, maybe a little, 0.8% of your county being 
unhoused people. Earlier this month, on the same day that Marin and other homeless advocates unveiled a lawsuit that unsuccessfully attempted to stop Measure O, two young people named Zoe and Boogie saw it. Despite from a typical Sacramento heat wave in the swampy shadow of the city library, a lot of them live and spend their nights underneath the shade of City Hall and like other um, shaded buildings, mainly public buildings, sometimes private though. I don't agree with it, said Zoe, 21, wearing a flowy sundress, but then you're not making the streets public. Now it's privatized land. Um, it's, I mean, it's an interesting concept to think about because, you know, is it a private street, you know, there's private land, can they not access their street because you're living on it? Is it actually public when, you know, that there's area, this area is a walkway, not a sleeping area to consider, you know, the benches, maybe that's a different discussion. So we'll see. And I mean, if the voters, which is the public, don't want people to sleep on it, is it really being privatized? You'll see. The city was generally interested in helping and house people come off the streets. She suggested it would ask them rather than tell them what they needed. And that it is an issue at times that people, the city should do more. Sometimes, though... A lot of these unhoused people are, or sometimes these unhoused people are invested or implicated with drugs, you know, and you have to accept a no drug policy to live in the housing. And, you know, sometimes that creates these issues because they won't give up the drugs and such. Uh, inside of Lowe's and Fishes, Willie Lee Jr. also knew what the limbo between a house and unhoused felt like. And of course, Lowe's and Fishes was that large charities for unhoused people. The Army veteran returned to Sacramento at the beginning of the pandemic to recuperate from a broken hip. He was still struggling with methamphetamine dependency when he secured a bunk inside the Salvation Army's Bare Bones Emergency Shelter on North B Street and was disturbed to see a wave of new neighbors at the shelter fall ill during the pandemic. One veteran died, he said. I mean, you see that methamphetamine dependency, but I mean, you know, we should, there should be more done for the veterans, of course. Um, and that was dropped, you know. And that could probably be in a better life. And we don't know if this Army veteran or Willie Lee Jr. possibly is housed now. Um, it's something that it's unknown. I mean, this article that I'm reading is pretty big, but it's almost a year old. So let's see. Lee said he waited 260 days to secure permanent housing through the Department of Veteran Affairs, and he has shrunk together only 302 days clean. Um, yeah, that's the Department of Veteran Affairs. He should be doing a lot more for the veterans. Benchmark is a year, he said, and it's hard because everybody here does meth, and that's something. If you can take the drugs out of these home or these shelters for the unhoused, then you know it can be a lot better for these people. Um, they can access a lot more housing, um, resources, support, and you know the problem could be solved. And that's one of the main solutions to the problem is getting the drugs out of these um, shelters. Methamphetamine was also Vincent's problem. He used it, sold it, took bullets to his hand and chest for being caught up in it. He said he started getting clean four years ago, not because he was able to get into an inpatient drug treatment program. Steinberg said the current wait list is some 500 people long because a friend let him have a two-month-old puppy that restored a sense of purpose and connection. Uh, yeah, and the inpatient drug treatment program, if they can increase that and go less towards this, you know, lawsuit fund or whatever, you know, not allow his citizens to sue the county if you going to put if you're going to put the money in that possibly that could be another proposition or measure if you put in these inpatient drug treatment programs or if you provide um you know you know just that more of that after more than a decade of homelessness vincent was finally on the path to stable housing thanks to the persistence of two caseworkers one from Lowe's and fishes found him a bed at the cape or one from Lowe's and fishes found him a bed at the x street navigation center where he was Headed after his now fully grown dog canine finished lunch inside the nonprofit's kennel. The other caseworker from Sacramento Self Help Housing got his name on a list for an apartment such as Hyacinthe. He was able to finally get some housing. Vincent, who receives $1,041 a month in supplemental security income, will 
be able for business who receives $1,041 a month in supplemental security income will just be able to cover the $941 per month rent with a little left over for dog food and incidentals. Um, so yeah, we'll be able to have a good live somewhere, actual housing and be able to take care for his dog canine. But first he planned to make the rounds and tell his homeless friends what the city has coming for them. And yeah, the pushing away and but, I mean, it really hasn't changed much, except, you know, the usual suits here and there. Let them know, he said, before you lose all your stuff. Yeah, leave, because the sweeps, you can lose a lot of stuff. And to there is, which really hasn't happened much. So, it was very interesting and a very, still much of a current issue. Today, I'd also like to talk about Don't Be Fooled by Measure O, the facts behind the wealthiest cynical ballot initiative. Opinion Sacramento is suffering from a homelessness crisis that requires real policy and public health solutions, including a massive increase in affordable housing and social services. That's true. I, I would have to agree with 100% with all of that. Sacramentans do not require Measure O, a bad faith effort that will increase dangerous sweeps against unsheltered residents who have nowhere to go. Um, yeah, but I mean, you do want to lessen the streets at some point. Measure O provides no affordable housing, no increase in services, and no funding toward actual solutions instead it prioritizes the demands of wealthy business owners at the expense of poor communities of color and people living without shelter so i mean there's this five million dollars a year that goes towards it um which is really so little it doesn't make any any much of a difference so yeah more money would have to go to it too so the problem like i talked about in the previous segment more of that that drug rehab will help a lot. Measure O simply sweeps people away without saying where, and that is true. There's no specific location they're going to. In the measure, according to a January 2022 count, about 9,300 people experience homelessness in Sacramento County on a given night. Yet the city and county have just 2,400 shelter beds and spaces, all of which are typically occupied. Um, yeah, so I have to increase that, and that's something big the city should also be doing. Our federal courts have found it is unconstitutional for a city to enforce an anti-camping ordinance when there are not any available shelter beds. It's true, this part of the measure, though, said once all the shelter beds are available, then the um, anti-camping ordinances will be enforced. But business interests want to defy the courts. They want to force the city to perform unconstitutional sweeps or face lawsuits from residents. Um, it's true, but it did say once the shelter beds have been increased. Opponents claim that the 600 shelter spaces added as a result of the measure of spaces that are smaller and less accommodating than many jail cells would allow the city to resume sweeps, but even if we filled them, the city would still have nearly 4,000 people without access to shelter. Yeah, the city needs more shelter spaces. This measure isn't just illegal and cruel. It would bankrupt the city, forcing officials to spend up to $5 million per year on enforcement, plus whatever legal bills they will definitely incur for being sued and yeah i mean that's five thousand dollars on legal stuff is just a big waste of money we don't have enough money to serve our unhoused population now what sense does it make to siphon five million dollars more away from real solutions how is someone counterproductive they should however though it should be more of this money with this measure it is providing towards the housing not towards this other organizations and stuff which tend to not use the money well, but towards just the house, providing the housing. It's not gaslighting, race being a race lighting to point out the obvious homelessness disproportionately impacts people of color, especially black and indigenous women here in Sacramento County. Black residents are nearly four times as likely to experience homelessness as white residents. For indigenous Sacramentans, it's between six and seven times likely, of course, but it's an issue that needs to be solved for everyone. If the business community truly wanted to support these populations, they would work with public health professionals and homeless service providers on actual solutions such as raising the minimum wage, increasing affordable housing supply, and strengthening renters' protections. Those are true, except the minimum wage. And I, you know, if people do need that. The main issue here, of course, you need the housing. There are some people who have that issue, but the main part is this drug use. The money that goes into it, you know, you can't live in these places while using the drug. It needs to be that rehab to get these people off the drug. That's one of the main issues of this homelessness crisis. I mean, the house, affordable housing is, of course, something which is an issue and, and you know, providing the housing. But it's also getting these people off the addiction to the drugs. Instead, they've done the opposite. And, of course, they want the quicker way out um, to fixing the city. You know, they want the most money. So, 
It is interesting. In the last few years, a business leader who supports Measure O has made himself the public face of the fight against both renters' rights and a higher minimum wage. Another fought against rent control when it was on the ballot in 2020. Um, so, I mean, if they don't want that, I, I mean, they can do that. I mean, it's important to consider these changes about you know, higher minimum wage. It's important because they're both sides because you'd be just increasing it. The economy will have to do well. So, I mean, it's not that it should just be increased forever without any opposition. But that's an interesting point. Being black or a woman or growing up in poverty doesn't prevent someone from supporting policies that are racist, sexist, and classist. When we have business leaders with firsthand experience of oppression, we should expect compassionate solutions. Instead, we've seen policies that continue to harm our most vulnerable neighbors. It's interesting to see this and yeah, more money towards the housing should be done. The public health community has stood firmly against their positions for quite some time and we've been right to do so. Um, yeah, it's not enough places for these people to go. As the cost of housing in Sacramento continues to skyrocket, these business leaders want to increase enforcement against our unhoused community, sweeping them away to undetermined places with absolutely no assurances of meaningful help. This is a public health nightmare in the making, and these business leaders know it. Perhaps they just don't care. And that is a big point of this. You know, people are going to be moved to unknown locations. The only good part of Measure O is the requirement that the city and county finally begin working together to combat homelessness. It should also surprise no one that the business leaders did nothing. Or should it also surprise no one that the business leaders did not support including this part. This is long overdue, but we don't need a ballot measure for this. Of course, everyone needs to, I mean, if you're running a business city, you should care about the welfare of the city. Because if the welfare of the city is not good, you're you're not going to make a lot of money. So, important to see. But, I mean, it's important. The ballot measure will declare the voters want this done, not just the council members to do whatever with. They want more housing for people. Let's be clear, Measure O is simply a tool for the city to sweep unsheltered residents out of its affluent, largely white neighborhoods. Meanwhile, the county has just passed an ordinance to clear the camps on the american river parkway our unsheltered neighbors are not going to just disappear once their camps are swept so where can they stay yeah and that's the main point where are they going if there's not enough housing for them all no measure is not the way to go um just point based off you know not enough housing so their arguments let's reject this expensive short-sighted tool enforcement and finally work together to address homelessness and i mean yeah i'm I mean, the more money they're spending on the loss is $5 million. I think that's a good point. It's taking away from the actually adding housing. You can actually have more housing instead of spending money on losses and stuff of that nature. I'd like to discuss now about satellite images capture a look at Tropical Storm Hillary's flooding in Palm Springs. The California desert's infinite loop of dry air and chromatic sun has been one of the Coachella Valley's iconic features, making Sunday night's once-in-a-lifetime deluge all the more stunning. And of course, refers to what her when Hurricane or what was formerly known as Hurricane Hillary that became Tropical Storm Hillary um, and the impacts on the region. Tropical Storm Hillary put dark clouds over the region, producing 3.18 inches of rain in Palm Springs on Sunday, record for the most precipitation recorded there on a single day. Even some regions in Southern California during when, when it was hit by Tropical Storm Hillary got up to 8 inches, so a lot of rain fell. Most of the rain fell from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday, or most of the rain fell from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, according to the National, or most of the rain fell from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, according to National Weather Service data. So, of course, you know, that late Sunday afternoon, there's a lot of rain and what, well, weather and producing the many inches of rain for the regions in Southern California. While all of Southern California's more than 20 million people were put on notice, most live along a coastline that avoided the brunt of Hillary, leaving inland areas, including the Coachella Valley, to absorb the brunt of the storm. That's true. A lot of the inland areas, Coachella Valley and stuff, more inland got hit by the storm. There's a lot less inches, maybe one inch to two inches in the other coastal areas, um, Orange County um, and Los Angeles County, and I believe a little less in San Diego County as well. Coachella Valley first responders are ready, and they're ready even though most of the area was flooded. Cathedral City Fire Chief Michael Contreras on Monday recounted rare overnight rescues, including moving six non-ambulatory people from a care facility in the bucket of an earth mover, so a lot of crazy escape 
steps had to be done as most of the Coachella Valley was flooded from large amounts of rain as a result of Tropical Storm Hillary. No storm-related injuries were reported, he said. So, I mean, while there was a lot of rain, life was affected for a few days. There was not a ton of, you know, long-standing injuries to people except possibly some property damage. There were some earthquakes, you know, some flooding, and the largest really inconvenienced people, but not a lot of permanent damage in the area. I also like to discuss an article titled Your Vote Matters from the Thomas School Board. What is one of the most important elections on the belt that has a huge impact on our community? Your local school board, I'd agree, is it's probably in most places one of the most local elections that occur. According to the National School Boards Association, school board members establish the vision and goals for the public schools in their district. They set standards for the performance of schools and superintendents. And, yeah, they can lead to whether some people consider some schools good in some areas or some schools bad in other areas. School boards oversee how that funding is managed and how well the administration educates students. For example, during the school year, our Natomas Unified School District Board of Trustees will oversee a projected budget of $222,181,972. Well, so, like, over $222 million of our tax dollars to prepare an estimated 17,500 of our scholars to either attend college or enter the workforce proficient in the basics of reading, math, critical thinking, and writing. So yeah, I mean, local school boards have a lot of money, <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars, a lot that is to be spent each year. The upcoming race for two new board members deserves every eligible voter's full participation. And I mean, all elections deserve in them. Last year, the Natomas Unified Board of Trustees approved a resolution that directed staff to lead the school district from at-large elections to by-trustee areas. This new by-trustee area method requires each trustee to live in the region they wish to represent, same as in the United States at the elections, like House of Representatives, um, possibly in some cities, some city councils, and state legislatures, things of that nature. Additionally, the voters who elect them must live within the specified neighborhood as well. This method ensures a greater opportunity for voters in every neighborhood to be represented, which ultimately fosters equity and greater inclusion. And yeah, and this would, this proposal is, it was seen in one of the early proposals. Three of the five trustees live in the same neighborhood. So yeah, this is going to bring more geographic diversity to, well, is bringing more geographic diversity to the school district, or the board of trustees for the school district. This November 8th, Trustee Area 1 Bloom, Trustee Area 4 Green will have vacant positions. Each voter residing in one of those areas may vote for one candidate. Area 1 was filled with Nomura, but Area 4, well, that candidate did resign. So it's back up for a special election this year. Vacant once again. Regardless of whether you have a student attending a Thomas Unified School, it's important to educate and familiarize oneself with the individuals whose decisions and interests may be implemented as they ultimately impact our entire community. A high-quality school system benefits our entire community. And, yeah, just like any office, really, elected office, people should consider who's running and what could be implemented as will impact their life greatly. Thomas Unified recently began offering new alternative career and learning options such as the cosmetology pathway and dual emergence school for our learners. Additionally, Natomas Unified is also in position to support the implementation of local initiatives such as youth and job readiness programs, food distributions, and the aquatic center and sports complexes. Yep, the dual emergence school just did open um, last month in August. The four candidates running for Natomas Unified School Board offer a clear choice in the direction of the school district. So, yeah, each candidate, of course, for every elected office. Most of the time, especially in general, after primaries, have a clear vision for what they'd like to see implemented and in which ways they'd like to see that implemented. In this video, I'd like to discuss the, well, in greater detail, the Calvin Report. So we start with Calvin Committee, report on the university's role in political and social action. Report of a faculty committee under the chairmanship of Harry Calvin Jr., committee appointed by President George W. Beale. Report published in the record, Volume 1, Number 1, November 11, 1967. The committee was appointed in February 1967 by President George W. Beadle and requested to prepare a statement on the university's role in political and social action. The committee conceives its function as principally that of providing a point of departure for discussion in the university community of this important question. 
The committee has reviewed the experience of the university in such matters as its participation in neighborhood re redevelopment, its defense of academic freedom in the Royals Bill Inquiry, the 1940s, and again in the Jenner Committee hearings of the early 1950s. Its opposition to the disclaimer affidavit in the National Defense Education Act of 1958, its reappraisal of the criteria by which it rents the off-campus housing it owns, and its position on furnishing the rank of male students to selective service. In its own discussions, the committee has found a deep consistency on the appropriate role of the university in political and social action. It senses some popular misconceptions about the role and wishes, therefore, simply to reaffirm a few old truths and a cherished tradition. A university has a great and unique role to play in fostering the development of social and political values in a society. The role is defined by the distinctive mission of the university and defined, too, by the distinctive characteristics of the university as a committee. It is a role for the long term. The mission of the university is the discovery, improvement, and dissemination of knowledge. Its domain of inquiry and scrutiny includes all aspects and all values of society. A university faithful to its mission will provide enduring challenges to social values, policies, practices, and institutions. By design and by effect, it is the institution which creates discontent with the existing social arrangements and proposes new ones. In brief, a good university like Socrates will be upsetting. The instrument of dissent and criticism is the individual faculty member or the individual student. The university is home and sponsor of critics. It is not itself the critic. It is to go back once again to the classic phrase, a community of scholars. To perform its mission in the society, a university must sustain an extraordinary environment of freedom of inquiry and maintain an independence from political fashions, passions, and pressures. A university, if it is to be true to its faith in intellectual inquiry, must embrace be hospitable to encourage the wildest diversity of views within its own community. It is a community, but only for the limited, albeit great purposes of teaching and research. It is not a club, it is not a trade association, it is not a lobby. Since the university is a committee only for these limited and distinctive purposes, it is a committee which cannot take collective action on the issues of the day without endangering the conditions for its existence and effectiveness. There is no mechanism by which it can reach a collective position without inhibiting that full freedom of assent on which it thrives. It cannot insist that all of its members favor a given view of social policy if it takes collective action. Therefore, it does so at the price of censoring any minority who does not agree with the view adopted. In brief, it is a committee which cannot resort to majority vote to reach positions on public issues. The neutrality of the university as institution rises then not from a lack of courage nor out of indifference and insensitivity. It rises out of respect for free inquiry and the obligation to cherish a diversity of viewpoints. And this neutrality as an institution has its complement in the fullest freedom for its faculty and students as individuals to participate in political action and social protests. It finds its complement, too, in the obligation of the university to provide a forum for the most searching and candid discussion of public issues. Moreover, the sources of power of a great university should not be misconceived. Its prestige and influence are based on integrity and intellectual competence. They are not based on the circumstance that may be wealthy, have, may have political contacts, and may have influential friends. From time to time, instances will arise in which the society or segments of it threaten the very mission of the university and its values of free inquiry. In such a crisis, it becomes the obligation of the university as an institution to oppose such measures and actually to defend its interests and its values. There's another context in which questions as to the appropriate role of the university may possibly arise. Situations involving university ownership of property, its receipt of funds, its awarding of honors, its membership in other organizations. Here of necessity, the university, however, it acts, must act as an institution in its corporate capacity. In the exceptional instance, these corporate activities of the university may appear so incompatible with paramount social values as to require careful assessment of the consequences. These extraordinary instances apart there emerges as we see a heavy presumption against the university taking collective action or expressing opinions on the political and social issues of the day, or modifying its corporate activities to foster social or political values, however compelling and appealing they may be. These are admittedly matters of large principle, and the application of principle to an individual case will not be easy. It must always be appropriate, therefore, for faculty or students or administration to question the existing challenges as the committee of the council or the council, whether in light of these principles, the university in particular circumstances is playing its proper role. Our basic conviction is that a great university can perform greatly for the betterment of society. It should not, therefore, permit itself to be diverted from its mission into playing the role of a second-rate political force or influence. Harry Calvin, Jr. Chairman, John Hope Franklin, Quinn J. Cole, 
George Stiegler, Jacob Giltzels, Julian Goldsmith, Gilbert F. White. Special comment by Mr. Stiegler. I agree with the report as drafted, except as the statements in the fifth paragraph from the end as to the role of the university when it is acting in its corporate capacity. As this matter, I prefer the statement in the following four. The university, when it acts in its corporate capacity as employer and property owner, should, of course, conduct its affairs with honor. The university should not use these corporate activities to foster any moral or political values because such use of its facilities will impair its integrity as the home of intellectual freedom. All right, welcome back. Something I'd like to discuss now is a look at institutional speech and contentious issues. So we'll begin with, colleges and universities frequently utilize forms of institutional speech to communicate their position on social and political issues. However, while institutional speech is a common practice, there's a debate among higher education leaders as to when and why schools should weigh on certain affairs. I mean, even, yeah, like the students are like, why are some affairs they want some opinion on others they don't or they don't like the opinion so it's a really contentious issue institutional speech is an action taken by the organization or a branch within that represents its collective beliefs on campus this can include a departmental statement a campus-wide message the renaming of a building divestment or the deplatforming of a speaker so yeah i mean it's not just words or statements that are typed out. It could be a variation of actions, which could be, I mean, the speech or the message which is stated. Many colleges and universities find themselves dealing with the consequences of institutional speech, such as frustrated community members, resignations, decreased giving, campus division, and in some rare cases, federal investigations. To grasp the current situation, the ongoing debates over institutional speech is helpful to look at a previous moment of societal societal and campus polarization in the 1960s. Although the times have changed, much can be pulled from the actions by products of this era. Yeah. Just so much, so many consequences that, consequences that aren't even just like student or like, like not, I mean, public opinion could be one, but more like the public opinion of the students who attend the school and things of that nature. The tumultuous era of the 1960s. Just as colleges and universities find themselves dealing with protests, unrest, and division, colleges and universities in the 1960s faced similar phenomena during the Civil Rights Movement and Vietnam War. Some institutions, particularly historically black colleges and universities, were far from silent. For instance, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, then president of Morehouse College, urged the students in his weekly chapel address newspaper columns to be sensitive to the wrongs, the suffering, and the injustices of society and to accept responsibility for correcting these. Also, social movement advocated to or advocated for by university. In contrast, the University of Chicago clarified it would not speak as an institution with the purpose of outlining the university's role in political and social action. The school released the Calvin Committee report on the university's role in political and social action. The report explained that a university, if it is to be true to its faith in intellectual inquiry, must embrace, be hospitable to, and encourage the widest diversity of views within its own community. It's a community which cannot take collective action on the issues of the day without endangering the conditions for its existence and effectiveness. There's no mechanism by which it can reach a collective position without inhibiting that full freedom of dissent on which it thrives. If you want, um, and this is just based off the Calvary report that I went over earlier in this episode. No matter the path chosen, few schools have been able to escape controversy and scrutiny. And I mean, you can see that today with all the schools who are scrutiny for certain students speaking away or actions the school takes. Contemporary examples of institutional speech. Disinviting a speaker as a form of institutional speech. Williams College in Uncomfortable Learning. As part of its Uncomfortable Learning speaker series, a student group at Williams College invited John Derbyshire, a commentary mathematician, self-described racist and homophobic to campus. Adam Falk, then president of the college, disinvited Derbyshire, writing that the college didn't invite Derbyshire but I have made it clear to the students who did that the college will not provide a platform for him. Many of his expressions clearly con constitute hate speech, and we will not promote such speech on the campus or in our community. The college's deplatforming of Derbyshire was met with criticism from several organizations and individuals, including the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, the chair of the American Association of University Professors Committee, the Academic Freedom and Tenure, and the Student 
president of the uncomfortable learning group, Falk intended to protect his students by prohibiting hateful rhetoric in his community, but his actions also resulted in tension and criticism. Yeah, and usually the universities will try to have free expression so they'd allow these speakers to come and let the students challenge the views rather than just blocking the views um, outright. Campus-wide email as form of institutional speech, Brown University, and the murder of George Floyd. After George Floyd, a black man, was killed by Derek Chauvin, a white Minneapolis police officer, Brown University joined the course of colleges and universities condemning the officer's actions and calling for systemic change. The campus-wide email, Brown's senior leadership, expressed sadness and frustration over the racist incidents that continue to cut short the lives of black people every day. The statement generated mixed responses. The graduate students of the Department of Africana Studies in a letter to Brown President Christina Paxson and other senior leaders said the me their message did not go far enough, provided four action items for the school to address. On the other end of the spectrum, Professor Glenn Lorry found it frustrating that the institution tried to speak as one. In an open response, Lorry explained that he deeply resented the letter and asked, why must this university's senior administration declare on behalf of the institution as a whole with one voice that they unanimously, without any subtle, dif subtle differences of emphasis or nuance, interpret contentious current events through a single lens. These contrary restrictions highlight the challenges of institutional speech and show that it's unlikely that one message will represent please pleasing campus community. And this is another time, you know, when the universities speak, some groups don't like it because they want to say more or less something of some other nature. And they really want more of a personalized speech from people rather than university saying this. And maybe some students would feel left out if, you know, the university said something that went against their beliefs. Uh, presidential tweet is a form of institutional speech, Liberty University and the face mask controversy. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Jerry Falwell Jr., then president of Liberty University, tweeted, an image of a face mask with one person in the Ku Klux Klan and another in blackface. Powell's tweet was intended to mock the mask requirement implemented by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, but instead ignited controversy on his own campus. Nearly three dozen black alumni comprised of faith leaders and former student athletes wrote a letter denouncing Powell and called for him to step down. The group wrote that everything you do and say is a reflection of Liberty University, whether you like it or not and that they will no longer donate funds to the university as well as actively encourage Christian leaders to decline the invitation to speak at Liberty. The alumni also circulated a petition that garnered nearly 40,000 signatures. Faculty and staff expressed anger as well, with at least four black employees resigning in protest of Fowell's post. Despite an apology statement, the reputational damage was already done, showing that institutional speech is not limited to formal channels, such as campus-wide emails or letters from the president, Rather, any form of communication, including a tweet, can be construed as institutional speech. And yeah, and some people are upset. You know, institutional speech, remember, it doesn't have to be a word or a statement. It can be an action as well. Presidential statement as a form of institutional speech, Princeton University and systemic racism. Princeton University released a message on the school's effort to combat systemic racism. In a letter to the university community, President Christopher Eisengruber outlined actions the university would take and acknowledged that most of Princeton's history, it has intentionally and systemically included people of color, women, Jews, and other minorities, and that racist assumptions from the past also remain embedded in structures of the university itself. Some believe Hayes Gruber's statement was insufficient. Jelani Dow, a member of Princeton's Black Leadership Coalition, said that one thing that stood out immediately was a lack of numbers. Without supporting these initiatives with any clear metrics, it's incredibly difficult to know what the university proposed change actually looks like or when a lot of these initiatives will be realized. The Department of Education has a much stronger or the Department of Education had a much different stronger response. Citing Princeton's admitted racism, the department Lots of civil rights investigation focused on the school's non-discrimination, equal opportunity assurances. Though the Biden administration suspended the investigation, this case exemplified the ways in which institutional speech can result in controversy. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're going to admit such a wild claim or like large claim, you have to back it up with some evidence. A faculty resolution is for a form of institutional speech. City University of New York and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a faculty group at the City University of New York decided to weigh in on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
The Professional Staff Congress, the university's official faculty union, adopted a resolution criticizing Israel for all for recent violence against Palestinians and called on the administration of Joe Biden to stop all aid funding human rights violations and occupation is illegal under international law. The resolution drew stark reactions. Eugene Chudnovsky, a professor at Lehman College in the Graduate School of Kuhn, took to the statement noting that many faculty and students see the assertion that Jews are not the indigenous people of the land of Israel's is anti-Semitic and criticizing the unexplained fixation of the union on the topic not related to its primary mission. Other faculty went a step further by quitting the union altogether. However, in a separate statement, signed by Kuni community members and organizations declared that this is not a conflict that is too controversial and complex to assess. We vowed to support those who are not are most vulnerable to attack for organizing and speaking out on our campuses. While the faculty union fulfilled its quest to take a stand in support of the Palestinian people, it resulted in division discomfort between members. Yep, and you have two groups trying to claim land to the same area and they want to live there together. Well, you get large conflict. Refusal to engage in institutional speech, Boston College and Fossil Field Investment. In an article in Boston College's student newspaper, the editorial board called on the school to divest from fossil fuel companies, writing that divestment is opportunity for BC to be an ethical leader among Jesuit and top four institutions and divest and investing fossil fuels betrays BC's Jesuit Catholic roots and ethics. In response to the calls for divestment, the university stated that the endowment exists to be a permanent source of funding for financial aid, faculty, chairs, and student programs. It is not a tool to promote social and political change, however desirable that, that change may, might be. A group of alumni and supporting groups asked the Massachusetts Attorney General to investigate the school's investment practices, claiming that the trustees have steadfastly refused to apply Boston College's values to their investment activity. Though the investigation is still ongoing, Boston College's position that it's remained unchanged. The divestment dilemma grows to, goes to show that even a college university's business operations and investment strategy have the potential to convey institutional values regardless of whether they are truly reflective of the institution's, belief, institution's beliefs. Likewise, a decision to uphold institutional neutrality in this case by refusing to divest may also be criticized. And yeah, this is something actually interesting. So it's not like a statement the university made to get funds from someone else. It's a financial statement they're making with their fund or financial statement they're making with funds. I think it's interesting and yeah, will have a large impact on um, the world or what people believe their statements on issues may be. Differing views of institutional speech. When it comes to institutional speech on contentious issues, there's no clear consensus on how to proceed. College and university professionals vary in their perception of the actions, with some feeling a sense of obligation to speak out and others feeling a need to remain silent and neutral. And that's what we've seen through some of these examples. Some believe that college and university leaders are in no place to broadcast their personal point of view. Richard Patnad, a former university president, states that the presidency is not about me, my opinions, and my view of the New World Order. I consider it inappropriate to think. I might somehow represent the political views of all the people who work and learn on our campus. Others argue that college and university leaders have a duty to actively engage. Um, so what I want to see with this or say with this is, you know, I guess it's, yeah, so if you're a leader of one of these universities, I guess it's not your personal view. You have to be careful because what you say represents what the university says in general or in large part. Um, yeah. So we're at the part um, about Margaret McKenna, another former president, asked, if college presidents don't ask questions about war and civil liberties, who will? We don't speak out on such issues and act as models for our students who will many academic leaders take the position that anything has the potential to alienate some constituency by definition poses risk to the institution and should be avoided. I disagree. Brian Ro Rosenberg, a former president himself, directs a similar chord, writing that there are three important reasons why American college and university presidents keep their distance from the political arena, the educational, the legal, and the financial, but enough is enough. Presidents should not stay silent when politicians actively undermine the core values by which our institutions live. I mean, you can have the students speak out. So you speak out. I mean, universities are a place for students to speak out because the students originally were the ones to speak out. And guess where they found the way or the reason to speak out. So, I mean, I guess that's what I think there. Maybe a little against um, what has been explained here. 
In debating the appropriate course, certain groups and individuals have developed a set of criteria for leaders to consider before speaking out. Pete McCackie, President McCackie's strategies, explains that there are a few questions to consider, such as our core values of the institution being called into question. Members of the campus can be being especially affected by events. Is the scale of the event sufficient to markedly affect the campus community? Do we have something to say that is unambiguous? And how can the statement meet an educational institution's obligation to teach as much as to inspire? And I really think this is more like, yeah, there has to be certain criteria that the actual university is being affected before statements being made. So I guess you have it both ways. If there is a statement that needs to be made, it can be made, but only in certain scenarios that statement will be made. Barbara McFadden, Alan Robert Keller, and Ruth Watkins, three current and former higher education administrators, advocate for similar questions to be asked and argue that a presidential message carries for only the very highest priorities. Crucial matters of compliance or emergency messages. Every use of the presidential bully pulpit makes future uses less effective. Yeah. Where we make the statements, less effective the next statement is. Even the University of Chicago, an institution that prides itself on campus free expression and institutional neutrality, believes there is a time and place for institutional speech. This was on full display when Chicago President Robert Zimmer then urged President Donald Trump to continue the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. And when he vocalized concern about an executive ordering order concerning free expression on campuses, the Cal report Zimmer defended institutional speech by reminding his campus that institutions can take position on political and social action. They involve matters that threaten the very mission of the university is commitment to freedom of inquiry and its basic operations. I believe here at the University of Chicago, most of those issues were most likely affecting or were in some way affecting the University of Chicago. Looking ahead, as higher education continues to find itself embroiled in the cultural and political debates, there's no doubt that the institutional speech will remain an important tool to convey the values of the school. Going forward, colleges and universities will need to consider the competing reputational and institutional factors in whether to speak. And are these universities trying to build the idea of what they are based on what they speak or build the idea of what they're on on freedom? of expression and basically blank state where students can select what they'd like to state. I'd like to discuss um, the, um, well, it's, it's no, it's not a zero sum game. It begins with in recent years, campus expression challenges have garnered the attention of media pundits, state legislators and advocacy groups and have too often been reduced to clickbait headlines and hyperbolic tweets that invite and escalate conflict on campus. Yet the issue of free expression on campus is more complex than that. And yeah, I mean, even you can see with the title, then not a zero-sum game. Um, this is probably most likely going to be about um, statements from university officials. And it can be a lot deeper than what the headline says. A breadth of ideas and views, including contentious ones, are part of life on campus, and administrators and faculty must develop strategies for building the community's capacity to effectively navigate speech controversies. All campus stakeholders would benefit from renewed focus on and continuing education and conversation about the value of robust expression in higher education alongside other institutional values, notably inclusion, legal protections for expression, and ways to facilitate and engage in difficult conversations. We hope these tips for doing so will be helpful. Um... Yeah, I mean, just have that free expression of ideas on campus is really, I would say, I guess, is the ideal goal. No in teacher institutional values. Campus community members should understand, be able to articulate why freedom of expression is essential to the mission of higher education and of their institution in particular. Freedom of expression, including the expression of unpopular ideas, underpins the inquiry exploration that enabled colleges and universities to fulfill their mission to generate and transmit knowledge to develop their students as critical thinkers. The University of California at UCN establishing the National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. UC Center in 2017 further emphasized this mission to serve as a training ground for an educated, engaged citizenry for leaders who will uphold our intrinsic democratic ideals while also helping us navigate a changing social and political landscape. And yeah, I'm just helping to promote that free expression of ideas. Stakeholders should also understand their institution's other core values, in particular diversity, equity, inclusion, and how they may interact with free expression. UC's policy on diversity notes that diversity is integral to UC's mission to serve the interests of the state, provide access to all groups, and achieve excellence academically by broadening and deepening both educational experience and the scholarly environment, and that the pluralistic university can model a process of proposing and testing ideas through respectful civil communication. 
yeah, that um, what the marketplace of ideas helps spread well knowledge of everyone. When free speech controversies arise on campus, media often pit the values of inclusion and free expression against each other. The zero-sum framework is limiting, and campus leaders should think about how these values can work together to enrich the campus environment. Reaching this goal requires a commitment to continuously highlight and examine efforts to practice and teach all members of the campus community skills of engaging and challenging but productive dialogue. It also requires connecting discussion of expression rights with conversations about using those rights thoughtfully in a campus setting. And yeah, always changing this free expression dialogue. You, I mean, you could see early in this episode, I discussed or I read the Calvin Report. And I mean, some of those ideas have changed um, or some people have different ideas from that now modern days, especially when it comes to universities making statements on um, controversial topics. Invest in teaching dialogue across difference, just as we teach students how to write an essay, speak another language, or use the periodic table. We must teach students, staff, faculty, and administrators how to talk and learn from one another when we disagree. Like strengthening any skill, engaging in meaningful discourse takes practice and requires dedicated resources, and this type of skill building should be incorporated into curricula rather than relegated to extracurricular clubs and service learning. And yeah, in the everyday classroom, there should just be that free um, spread and debate of ideas. Understand teaching model basic First Amendment. A 2020 Freedom Forum survey found that 18% of participants were unable to name even one of the five freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment speech, religion, press, assembly, and petition. Similarly, most people do not understand that the First Amendment protects individual speech from censorship or retaliation by only the government category that includes public colleges and universities and not by private companies like Facebook or Twitter. While private colleges and universities are not required to follow First Amendment jurisprudence, inspired by First Amendment norms to fulfill their conditions, I believe, I guess, it's in California, they are required to follow First Amendment. Yeah, it's just so many people in the general world now just believe um what's the first one they put facebook facebook censoring me well it's a private company can do what it wants like you know this country's not the united states isn't fully free speech anywhere and everywhere you go i mean against the government yes but not for anything that happens too often institutions of higher education take a one and done approach to educating stakeholders about the first amendment maybe mentioning these principles only during first year orientation understanding including these values require consistent educational efforts through research and programming, the UC Center explores the intersection of expression and democratic learning and considers what can be done to restore trust in the value of free speech on campuses and within society at large. To that end, the center compiled resources from a range of institutions, including lesson plans and modules on free expression in the First Amendment. Um, yeah, U- University of California Free Speech Center. A lot of great stuff on how to expand free speech. Um, key legal concepts that may arise as your institution teaches and models these principles include some things that we're going to go over. It's true the First Amendment does generally protect hateful speech from prohibition. Protecting speech we enjoy and agree with comes naturally. Protecting speech we abhor and believe is damaging to the campus climate is where it gets hard. The Constitution prohibits government from censoring speech based on its viewpoint and in some spaces based on its content. This includes for the most part offensive, demeaning, and disparaging speech. In fact, the term hate speech has no legal definition. Offensiveness is a subjective inquiry. Think about humor. What one person considers funny, another might find rude and insulting. Do we want the government determining which topics or perspectives are offensive and therefore not permitted? Would that determination change depending on who is in power? And yes, a lot of things are allowed, even though some people do not believe they should be. When a public college or university establishes rules and corresponding sanctions, people need to be aware of what triggers the consequences. Without that clarity, a court would likely invalidate the law for being unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. Take, for example, what happened in the University of Michigan. Oh, take, for example, what happened when the University of Michigan created hate speech codes in the 1980s in response to anti-black expressions such as flowering on campus. Court struck down these codes because in light of how the university had been forcing the policy, people would have had to guess at the meaning of language in the policy, such as stigmatizes and victimizes. The plaintiff argued that this ambiguity would chill speech because students would stay silent rather than risk sanctions for commenting on a controversial issue. And yeah, if you're going to make a restriction on speech, you have to be kind of clear on what you're restricting. The First Amendment does not protect certain categories of speech, but the courts have defined these narrowly. They include, for example, threats. However, threat in this context is defined as a serious expression of intent to commit act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. Likewise, the First Amendment does not protect conduct rising to the level of harassment, but the First Amendment standard for harassment in the educational context extracting it requires that the conduct is, is at least severe or 
pervasive, is objectively and subjectively offensive, and has caused actual material disruption of the educational experience. Other categories of unprotected speech, like fighting words or incitement, are likewise narrower in their legal meaning than in colloquial usage. And yeah, I mean, just it's what if you're going to block um, a freedom of expression, especially like a public university, you should be very explicit on what words you're blocking. You can't make something too general or the courts will strike it down.